Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, and chapter 3, and we're studying Acts, and we're trying to emphasize that this book is a transitional book, so it is not a good place to take a new convert or a new church to, to teach them the doctrine of the New Testament church. It is a transitional book. Things are changing in this book. We are going to start reading in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, and at this point, Peter and John are still going up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. Now, that's Old Testament Jewish behavior. Am I, am I right, Brother Clifford? Yeah, and it's a habit, it's a religious thing that they're doing. And they, they are still living like an Old Testament Jew. That's one of the things that are changing. Um, so we're going to see these things as we go through it. And remember that God at this point is dealing with the nation of Israel through the Apostle Peter. He was sent to the Jews. He's dealing with them about repenting of crucifying their Messiah and repenting of the rebellion against God. So, as we look at chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to pick up there in just a moment, but I want to say something else, and I want to read a quote about what we studied in the end of chapter 2. We're not going to look at the verses, you know, in detail, but we had studied about the first church. We had studied uh, the first church and, and how they were formed and what their life was like among the believers and we learned what to look for in a good church, right? We had studied in verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, I wanted to read uh, an article here because this, it, it clearly explains what I was trying to bring across last Sunday morning, okay? One of the first exercises of the New Testament church after Pentecost was preserving the apostles' doctrine. That's what they were doing. And uh, the author of this article goes on to say, doctrinal purity was essential to a New Testament church. What is doctrine again? What is doctrine? That's a word. It's a good Bible word, uh, but one that we don't use every day. And so simply, doctrine is teaching. That's what that word means, literally. It means teaching. Um, but it means more than that. It, it's teaching what we believe and how we behave as New Testament Christians. Our beliefs are always connected to our behaviors. Doctrine is always connected to duty. Principles is always connected to practice. So they were... Continuing in the apostles' doctrine, the local churches placed themselves under God's authority by accepting the discipline of the word of God. This is what I wanted to bring out. So they were all together. They were all continuing steadfastly in the doctrine. And so they were submitting themselves to the discipline of the word of God. That's a positive discipline. We've talked about discipline in the New Testament church Early uh, believers, what we would call church fathers, anti-Nicene, before the Nicene Council, 
they emphasize this because the apostles emphasize this, the discipline in the church. Not only that, but the reformers of the church after the Dark Ages, the reformers who tried to correct the church in the, uh, well, it started really in 1300s, 1400s, 1500s is when it really kicked off with Martin Luther. But they emphasized that the church gathered for specific reasons. They gathered for fellowship, you know, for worship, for teaching, and they gathered for discipline. Um, talking about the reason for the local church. What are we here for? What are we doing? Discipline is one of them. There is a positive discipline. We've talked about negative discipline before, but I wanted to bring out the positive discipline. The proclamation of the scriptures become a positive discipline, developing correct beliefs and lifestyle. When Christians need to be confronted and rebuked for sin or false belief, either individually or corporally, then negative discipline will correct the error of bringing the church back to its biblical role. And that's the point. Bringing the church, when the church gets off track, either by an individual member or as a whole, bringing the church back to the apostles' doctrine and where it should be. So there's positive discipline. That's what we're doing right now. That's what I do and what you do every time we study the Bible. And you know how it is. As a believer, you're studying the Bible, and soon God starts to speak to your heart. You know what I'm saying? And like, Lord, how did you know I was going through that? And how can something that was written 2,000 years ago speak to what I'm going through this week? Well, that's the Holy Spirit doing positive discipline. Kind of bringing our thoughts in line, you know, and our behaviors and so on. Okay, so when an assembly of people removes themselves from the authority of Scripture... That assembly ceases to be a New Testament church. It's no longer a church. I was listening to uh, a sermon given by Franklin Graham yesterday, trying to find some inspiration, you know, for Memorial Day uh, preaching. And um, I was listening to the way he gives his invitation and the way he instructs new converts, you know, at the end of his preaching. Um, he stood up there. And by the way, I think I think Franklin Graham, um, he's straighter on the Bible and on doctrine than what his dad was towards the end of his ministry. I, I believe that. Um, and I'm not trying to put down Billy Graham because I wouldn't do that. God used Billy Graham tremendously, and Billy Graham will give an, an account for his own ministry. And I'll give an account for my little ministry. But regardless... When he stood up there, he said this to his converts. He, he held up his Bible. He said, now that you're saved or once you trust Jesus Christ, you need to find a church that believes this book. And he said, sadly, there's a lot of churches out there that no longer believe this book. And that's so true. They no longer believe this book. So he said, find a church that still believes this book and then get into a Bible study. Right? Isn't that good advice? We know that as, as seasoned believers. That's good advice. But for a new convert, man, that's just what they need to hear. Well, a church that no longer believes this book is no longer a New Testament church. They have ceased to be. So, um, as a church, we need to evaluate what we believe, evaluate our practices, and then bring it back into line 
with the Bible. You say, how does the church stay in line with the Bible? Well, a pastor has to lead the church in that, and you need to, a good pastor who still believes the book. And then the people themselves, individually, were just under the discipline of the Word of God, positive and negative. So therefore, if a, if a person in the church is disciplined by the pastor, okay, you've you got to just say, all right, he's talking to me about this for a reason, and I'm going to humble myself and listen to what he has to say and pray about it, and this is between me and the Lord, and I want to get this right. If I'm not in line with the Word of God, I want to get this right. That should be the attitude um, of a believer, okay? Before we go to chapter 3, let me say this one thing. Uh, I haven't really gone to people to do that too much. Um, I haven't felt the liberty to do that. Uh, but on occasion, I have because I feel like if I don't, I'll be unfaithful to my calling. But I've tried not to do that, just give the Holy Spirit time to work on people. Um, but there was a time when I was going through a rough time in my life, and as a guy, you're going through a rough time, it usually comes out in, like, anger, <laughs> eventually, you know, and you lose it on somebody eventually, trying to keep your cool, and eventually you'll lose it on somebody, and then you say, I need to get this thing right with God, and, um, well, I was, I was dealing with somebody who was parking in the church parking lot, and they had no business being in this church parking lot. You know what I'm saying? Does anybody know what I'm saying here? Um, and they just kept coming and parking there like it was their parking lot. And there's a big old sign that says, this is church park parking for only for church activities. Uh, this person would park there. And then when we really needed that spot, they were there. And, uh, you know, certain events fill up a parking lot, and you really need that spot, or else you got somebody that's coming in with the bus, and they need to park it sideways. Anyways, I was the guy in charge of that, you know, being the assistant pastor, and I'd go out and leave a note, you know, and things like that. Well, one day, the guy was actually sitting in his car, and I was out there walking with the pastor, and we were looking at the property and looking at this sidewalk and talking about what we needed to do with this sidewalk, and I saw the guy, and I walked right up to him, man, and just put my finger in his face and said, listen, you need to stop parking here, and lost my cool on him. And Pastor Leafly was like, John, you don't do that. You cannot talk to people like that in the community that are, uh, you shouldn't talk to anybody like that, but especially people who are not a part of our church. They don't know you. They don't understand. And he said, you just, you just don't do that. There's people, you know, the tow truck, other people handle that. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know what? He was right. We're supposed to have a good report with those that are without, right? Well, what was that? That was discipline, negative discipline, called, called on the carpet by my pastor. And I said, you're right, I'm sorry. And, uh, and I, I realized I need to get alone with the Lord and get some things settled and get my, get my joy back, get the sweetness back. Okay, so that's what the New Testament church does in part. That's one of the major roles, the discipline of the church. What's that? <laughs> exactly. Them tow truck drivers, man. They don't have to have a personality. They just, you know, they just, I, my job, man, get out of my way. and Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And God bless those tow truck drivers when you need them, man. But, yeah, exactly. That's it right there. 
there's ways to handle it. There's the sign, all this stuff. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but I never did. Just so you know, I never did call a tow truck on somebody. I did one time, and they didn't come, and um, we canceled it. Yes. No, well, for a while, yeah, for a while he did, and um, there, there's something else. But anyways, just it's just that little. Anyways, um, yes, be angry and sin not. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> chapter three and verse one. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. We talked about that and the, the day, the daylight hours start at 6 a.m. So that would make it 3 p.m. being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. That's one of the gates leading into the temple, the beautiful gate, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. I picture this lame man, this man who's crippled, just sitting there with a can. You know, that's the picture I get. And shaking it. Maybe he has a few uh, denarii in there. Uh, shaking. That's how I picture it, you know. And he's asking alms. He's saying, would you please uh, give something to the poor? And so Peter and John passed by. And uh, verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. Now, I know we're studying that this is transitional, and they're still going up to the temple, and this is still Old Testament Jews. We're in Jewish territory. The message is still right now for the Jews, not like we understand it today. But I'll say this, Peter has changed, don't you think? Peter was like, I am the greatest of the disciples, and it's all about me. And even if everybody else forsakes you, Lord, I won't. I will be faithful. I don't know what these other guys are going to do, but I'm going to be faithful. And Peter was always about himself. But here he says in verse 4, look on us. Now he's including the others with him, which just shows that he's growing. And uh, I like Peter because Peter is like all of us. You know, we have a tendency to be a lot like Peter, but it just goes to show you, you give the Lord time to work on you, he'll take you from a point to where it's me to it's us. And so he says, look on us. Peter's saying, I'm not the answer, but we're going to try to help you. Look on us. And he gave heed unto them expecting to receive something of them. So this poor man is expecting now to get a handout and to get some help. Now, what happens here is a miracle, one of the miracles of the New Testament. In verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up. And walk. It's an interesting to know that Peter, who was claimed to be the first pope, uh, wouldn't have made a very good pope in a lot of different ways. One of them is that he was poor. And what pope was there ever in history that was not filthy, rich, and, and corrupted 
by his riches. But Peter was a poor man, and uh, Brother Clifford brought this up the other day, and he said that the church, uh, and Peter here, started out poor, but they were wealthy spiritually, and there were many souls that were converted in the book of Acts. Many people saved. So you, you had a powerful church in the beginning, a poor church in Jerusalem, but a powerful church. And then what the church became in Rome is it became powerful and rich and corrupt, especially after the 300s. Heresy set in right away. But after the 300s, it uh, basically won the, the favor of Rome and was it conquered Rome, so to speak, and it became the religion, the national religion, and it became very powerful and very rich and very corrupt and few conversions, few conversions. So just an interesting kind of a contrast there. So he says, I, I don't have any money to help you with, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So here's some observations about this miracle of healing within this chapter. Healings always uh, are physical, and they demonstrate something physically. They demonstrate a sign. Healings in the book of Acts and in the Gospels were physical demonstrations that uh, demonstrated a sign to the Jews. They demonstrated a sign. So from Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. This is one of those wonders and signs. So those miracles, number one, would meet a physical need. You could see it happening. And it was for a sign. Number two, they involve a complete and perfect work. The miracle was complete. There was no partial healing. Uh, every time a, a miracle occurred, it was complete. So no partials. You say, what's the big deal about that? If you go a lot to a lot of so-called healing crusades uh, that have been going on in our country through the, the charismatic movement within the 20th century and now on into the 21st, you go to these crusades, and a person will go up for healing, and they'll, they'll want healing for something, and the only ones that they say actually happen are things that you can't validate. A person goes up there in a wheelchair, they're not going to get up out of that wheelchair and walk away unless it was a hoax. Uh, but they'll say, my hearing was fixed, you know, or my arthritis is gone, and things like that. <coughs> a complete healing. Then that's interesting, and that's that's important spiritually. When you get saved, salvation is a complete work. It's finished. The moment that you're saved and spiritually healed, it's complete. It's not partial and depending upon you to make up the difference or you to do your part. That's not how salvation works. So uh, now thirdly, miracles in the New Testament, they involve... Biblical faith. Biblical faith. Faith on the part of the person being healed and faith on the part of the person that God is using as an instrument to heal people. Sometimes, though, the person being healed didn't have faith. 
but the person that was being used as an instrument to touch and to heal by God's power, they had the faith. So it's not true that in every case that a person had to have faith because people will say, these con artists will say, well, you didn't get healed because you didn't have faith. Well, I read my Bible where people were healed and they didn't have faith. They were healed for, for a reason, and which uh, is our next point. So um, the healing here in this case, it occurred for the purpose of glorifying God. God planned to heal this guy this day, and he did it through biblical faith, and it was for the purpose of glorifying God and as a sign to the Jews because Peter is about ready to preach to the Jews again. And and the Jews that are there at the temple, they're going to see Peter. In verse 12, uh, Peter starts to launch into his sermon because they're marveling at this. They're, They're like amazed by what just happened. And this sign to the Jews was was for the purpose of glorifying God, getting the Jews' attention so that Peter could preach to them once again and give them an opportunity to repent. That's the purpose. Now, biblical faith, what is it? What is biblical faith? Yes, you, you guessed it. You got it. Biblical faith is taking God at his word. Yes, yep. Yeah, and you know what? In coming here, now I don't know everything. Just because I've gone to Bible college and have a couple of degrees doesn't mean I know everything. But coming here, you know what's really impressed me about this area and about the, the, the heritage. You know, on the sign coming into Racine, there's three words there about what Racine is all about. One of them's community, one of them's heritage, and there's another one. I, I forget what the third one is. But the heritage of Racine, the spiritual heritage, is that people in this area were really grounded in biblical truth. And I think it's a result of mainly, as far as I can tell talking to people, it's at least largely a result of Don Walker's ministry. Just good old-fashioned, sound, fundamental Bible teaching. Just plain preaching. And I've listened to his preaching. You can hear some of it on Sermon Audio. And it's popular on Sermon Audio. He's, he's gotten a lot of listens. Um, that's what's grounded the people in, in good Bible doctrine. And it's just, it's incredible. You know what, though? The next generation needs to get that same thing. Right? So um, they need to hear stuff like, what is faith? Faith is taking God at his word. And, and what this guy did is he responded to God's word, which was inspired and coming from the apostles, he responded to God's word and God's will. What is God's word? It's telling us what he wants us to believe and what he wants us to do. Responding to his will and basically acting on it, you see. Peter, he acted on God's spirit that witnessed to him and told him, help this man. There was some kind of an impulse or a word from the Holy Spirit that said to Peter, Heal this man. And so faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. That's what salvation is, right? The call to salvation this morning during our service. I hope to, by God's grace, to preach the gospel and to call people to faith, which is to take God at his word. If you'll trust Jesus Christ, he'll blot out all your sins. All your sins will be canceled out. 
And Jesus will give you eternal life if you put all your faith and hope and trust in him. But now you need to act on it. You need to call on the name of the Lord. Tell him you're putting all your faith and trust in him, right? Yeah, right, yes. And there's God's word. God's word is, well, why do I need to be saved? Well, you won't want to be saved unless you know you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all in trouble because of sin. And that's God's word. All have sinned. So you need to respond to God's word, right? Well, what do I do to get saved from sin? So it's just interesting what's happening here through this miracle. Now uh, he's leaping up, verse 8. He's really making a spectacle. Leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple. And now you can imagine all the people that go to the temple have been seeing this man for some time now. And he's walking and leaping and praising God. That's what we should all do when when we get saved and we're healed spiritually. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now this is all by design. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held uh, Peter and John... All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the temple area of that day, Solomon's porch ran along the side uh, of the extent of that temple area. So, Jesus would get up on that temple uh, porch, Solomon's porch. He would get up there and he would preach and minister and things like that. And so you can just imagine they're standing up on that porch up several uh, stairs and looking out over that temple area. And this is just a spectacle uh, for the wonder and the amazement of the Jews. And when Peter saw it, all of a sudden Peter's like, I see what's happening. I see what God's doing. He answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, and he starts to preach his second sermon. So his sermon comes like basically the, the, the platform for his sermon is this healing, and then he just shoots off like a rocket and from there and uses that as a platform to preach now his second sermon to the Jews, which we're studying now. He says, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? And why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? So he's given all the glory to God. And he says in verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So now he starts with God, with God's glory, and um, and he says that all of this is done to glorify his son, Jesus. And then he says, whom ye, using that plural, second person pronoun, he gets to the you of the sermon. I can't help but just say a word here about this. Um, Preachers, good preachers, are you preachers. You, You say, what do you mean by that? They're not we preachers. If you listen to some preaching today, especially modern day preaching, because people are resistant towards preaching these days. 
It's not popular. This is an out-of-season time for preaching. They, you hear preachers, and they say, now we must do this, and we must admit that we're sinners, and we must repent of our sin, and, and all of this stuff, and that preacher is wanting to include himself in it to kind of soften the blow. And that's not biblical preaching. The, that preacher should have already admitted that he was a sinner and repented of his sin and turned to Jesus Christ. And, and a preacher, at some point in time in his sermon... He needs to get to the you part of the sermon and say, you must respond to God's word. And this is what God requires of you. And you must repent and so on and so forth. Or you must believe and and, uh, you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's biblical preaching. It's pointed preaching, even though it's bad manners to point at people. It's pointed preaching. So if you're in like a, depending on situation that you're in it's polite to start to talk about we uh we as a country today we honor you know the the fallen of this nation and we honor all the dead in all of the wars of this country and uh, on this memorial day we do this but then at some point in time it needs to change to you you are responsible before god to repent and to turn your faith and trust to jesus christ and you see it's the you part of preaching That's what it is. That's New Testament. That's biblical preaching. And he does. He puts it right on them. And because he says, verse 14, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer. Hey, Eddie, good to see you. Um, You desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Who was that? Who was the murderer that they wanted instead of Jesus? Barabbas. Do you know what that name means? Bar is son, and then Abba, or Abba. You might have, Abba. And what does Abba mean? We, we, father, yeah. So he's the son of the father. Isn't that interesting? So you have one guy, Barabbas, who's called the son of the father. And then you have this other man uh, from Nazareth who is truly the son of God. And so they took one over the other. Isn't that interesting? And... Israel, here's just kind of a prophetic point, Israel in the future, they will take one who claims to be God and who is an imitator of Jesus and everything that Jesus does, the Antichrist imitates. And they will take a false Messiah. He will claim to be the Messiah to the Jews. And many will be deceived and take him instead of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And so he says, you took Barabbas instead of jesus you desired that murderer what kind of people must you be that you would let a murderer go and escape justice and then you would kill the prince of life whom god hath raised from the dead now see he's preaching jesus he's preaching the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus christ and it didn't take him long to get to it did it (laughs) charles Haddon spurgeon that great uh, preacher in England, in the 1800s, he, he said, no matter what text I take, which he would oftentimes start studying on Saturday night at 6 p.m., whatever he was doing, if he was hanging out, he's oftentimes fellowshipping with people and having dinner and stuff like that, or playing with his, uh, ha- hanging out with his wife, playing with kids. At 6 o'clock, he would go to his study, and he would start to, he would pick his text. Sometimes he'd really battle and struggle to get his text, but once he got it, He says that my job is to take my text on Sunday morning and make a beeline 
to the cross. That means just as fast as I can, I try to get to the cross. He always, always preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, never failed. Um, and a Christless sermon is a, uh, is a tragedy. Uh, so I try to remember that myself. Okay, and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. In his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. You can't deny this miracle that you just saw. Well, we did it through Jesus' name. The faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, he's speaking to them as a Jew. He's a Jew, and he's talking to his Jewish brethren. They're not saved, but this is a like a, a Jewish lineage or Jewish blood. And now, brethren, I what? That through ignorance ye did it. We don't use that word anymore. We say, I know. But that's an archaic word there. I know that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. They didn't know what they were doing. They, didn't, they were unwittingly, as we already studied in Acts, unwittingly fulfilling God's you know, plan, God's will. Where did we read that? That God had before ordained that these things would happen. We studied it. It's in Acts, and I don't have my marked Bible, but um, I think it was in his first sermon. He's going back to this again. I think it was his address at Pentecost in Acts 2.14. Um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That is just incredible. God had always planned to do this. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They did it unwittingly, not knowing what they were doing, but they fulfilled the will of God through their rebellion and through their sin. It's just, it's amazing. God truly is sovereign and in control of everything. And it was in the fullness of time. So God had to wait. He had to wait, first of all, for crucifixion to be a form of capital punishment because it had not always been. You know, and we talked about that before. So there was a lot of things that God was waiting for, the fullness of time, for uh, Greek uh, to become uh, re normalized by, I forget now who, Brother Clifford, you said that somebody had made uh, standardized Greek as a language. Alexander the Great. Yeah, and then that made it so that was like a universal language. And everybody was talking Greek, so therefore the apostles could go everywhere preaching Greek, write the New Testament in Greek, and get it out there. That's one of the things that God was moving around, moving the pieces around. You know, he's in control of everything. And even the Jews, the situation with the Jews underneath Rome and having the, you know, the, the liberty and the freedom that they did have, although they were kind of like puppets underneath Rome, but in order to bring everything to pass. So he says, you did it through ignorance as did also your rulers. Verse 18, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath also so fulfilled. 
So who are those prophets? Well, probably the greatest would be Isaiah, right? Um, You could look at, maybe we'll just look at it real quick. Isaiah 53. What's that? 43? 43, 45? 25. Okay, let's look at that. Oh, I think you're... I think you're thinking of 53. 53 is the suffering servant. Hmm. Yes. And uh, look at also Isaiah 53. And there's another, there's another big chapter in there. Is it 21? It might be Jeremiah. But anyways, Isaiah 53 is the uh, famous one. And that's basically the gospel according to Isaiah. That's what Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he was up in his chariot. Who hath believed our report? Oh, it's Psalm 22 that I'm thinking of. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, that's Jesus. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, in his appearance, was not this tall, attractive, uh, persuasive, charismatic individual. He was a short Jewish guy with dark, uh, black, curly hair. And he was olive-colored in tone. He had a Jewish nose. He was not blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Uh, he, he looked like a Jew. And he was not attractive to look at. You didn't look at this guy and say, that's the guy that should lead. You didn't do that. But when he spoke, then people said, I've never heard anybody speak like that. And when he loved, and just being in his presence... You, you felt like here's a person who comes alongside of me. They're not condemning me, you know, and speaks such comforting and gracious words. And uh, I feel God <laughs> through this person because he was God in a human body. <clears throat> but when he says, when we shall see him, there's no beauty. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you know who the Jews say that this chapter uh, is uh, directed at or who it's describing? They think it's describing the suffering nation of Israel. Isn't that that a tragedy? Lost Orthodox Jews that still believe in their own book think that Isaiah 53 is describing the suffering uh, son, which Israel is called the son at one place, But they think that that's describing Israel suffering. That's so sad, so tragic. But some are brought to understand and and to uh, faith that that is a prophecy of Jesus. So back in Acts chapter 3, he said, uh, Those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, you know, Micah, um, Jeremiah, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Specifically, though, Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant. And Jesus Christ fulfilled all the prophecies. 
Now he says, repent ye therefore. We'll pick up right there next time on verse 19. So you know what he gave them? He stood up and he preached the gospel, which is the word of God. That's the power to convert. Uh, that's the seed of the word. And you're born again through the word. So he preached the word. He, he took something that had happened and used that as an occasion. He already had their attention. Used that as an occasion and as an illustration for what his sermon was. And then he brought them back to the book and he said, the prophets, this is my proof. The prophets had, had said that these things would happen and that Jesus would suffer. And they thought this, their coming Messiah, they didn't see him as a suffering servant. They saw him as being like greater than David and Solomon. And he was going to come back in power and in persuasiveness and was going to rule and deliver them from the tyranny of the Romans. And Peter said, you missed it. There's a prophecy about the suffering servant. He had to suffer first, is what he's trying to say. And you are guilty of crucifying him. And we're going to find out next time who else is guilty of crucifying him. All right, let's go ahead and take a break there.